Good morning and happy Easter, the day when we join with the Universal Church to celebrate that Jesus, our Savior, is risen from the dead and that he is alive and that he is reigning right now, even as we speak from his throne, that he is interceding on our behalf and saving us from our sin. Our sermon this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 to 49. So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles if you have them. If you're using a pew Bible from James River, you can find 1 Corinthians 15 on page 904. If you're using another Bible, you can find 1 Corinthians in the New Testament towards the back of the book, uh, immediately after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, and then uh, Acts and Romans. 1 Corinthians is immediately after Romans. 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul's definitive treatment of the resurrection. In fact, we've been going through this chapter for several years on Easter Sunday, just working slowly through it, um, because Easter Sunday is a day for us to be intentional to remember the resurrection. And 1 Corinthians 15 is where Paul uh, speaks about the resurrection. A couple of years ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11, which is all about... The resurrection of Jesus, specifically Jesus's resurrection, right? Paul makes it clear that that the resurrection of Jesus is not um, kind of an ancillary, uh, you know, part of it, it's 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 core doctrine. It matters. It's not something on the fringe or on the side. It's not something that's debatable. The resurrection of Jesus is crucial to the gospel message. It's essential to the Christian faith, and you can't be a Christian if you deny the resurrection of Jesus. And then he goes on to give evidence for it, right? Not only is it central, but it's necessary, right? And 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 um, here's why you can trust that it happened. Paul says, because, because I saw Jesus. I saw the risen Christ. I, I had an encounter with him. I never met Jesus before he died, but I had an encounter with him after he was raised from the dead. And it wasn't just me, Paul, but it was also all of the apostles, the, the 12, uh, and then hundreds of other people saw the risen Christ. They met him, and those people are still alive. And you can go and you can talk to them even today. You can do your own fact-checking. That's, that's kind of First uh, Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. Jesus is alive. The, the resurrection of Jesus is central to the faith. And here's how you can know that Jesus was raised from the dead. Because people, uh, myself included, and others who are still alive, saw Jesus and interacted with him. In verses 12 through 34, uh, Paul kind of transitions, uh, you know, uh, to, to the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. 1 through 11 is the resurrection of Jesus. 12 through 34 is what the resurrection of Jesus means for the Christian. And specifically what it means is uh, not only that, that Jesus is sovereign, not only that Jesus has been vindicated as our Savior, not only that he is alive and in heaven right now with God, all of that's true, but specifically the implications for the Christian are that we will be raised from the dead with Jesus. We will be united with Jesus in his resurrection. Jesus was raised and we will be raised with him. Right, So this is where Paul argues that if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then you, Christian, you won't be raised from the dead. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then your faith is in vain. Then you are to be pitied more than any other person on the planet. Because, because you, we are giving our lives to something that is, uh, that is a sham. Right? So 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 1 through 11, Jesus was raised from the dead. Uh, 15, 12 through 34, here's what that means for us. We will be raised from the dead with him and we will be saved from our sin and we will live life for all of eternity with God in heaven. 
And then beginning in verse 35, our text today, uh, Paul kind of anticipates a question or a concern or an objection that his reader, his listener, might have after hearing that. After hearing that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and after hearing that because he has been raised from the dead, we will be raised with him and we will live life for all of eternity with him, the question naturally uh, comes up, well, what's that going to be like? What is this eternal life that you're speaking about? What is it going to be like? What what are our bodies going to be like? What is life going to to be like? Because it, in all fairness, um, eternal life sounds great, right? We have all human beings kind of have this instinctive aversion to death. We don't like death. We don't want to talk about death. We don't want to think about death. We don't like the idea of dying. Uh, you know. Uh, so, so the, res- the the doctrine of the resurrection on its surface has some appeal. We don't like death. We do like life. So the idea of coming back to life after we die is appealing. And yet, um, in and of itself, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're all entirely bought in to the idea of resurrection and eternal life with no questions asked. Because even if we don't, even if we don't instinctively like death, uh, the concept of eternal life is only good if that life that we're living for all of eternity is good. If it's a life worth living, right? And in the first century, Paul is writing uh, to to a, a broad uh, audience of people, and that's not necessarily a given, right? There, there there are plenty of people in the first century that were reading Paul's letters that were wealthy and rich and had comfortable lives, but even they still had lives that were hard uh, by comparison with our lives today. And there was also plenty of people who were poor and they were slaves and they were under, uh, you know, immeasurable amounts of debt and they would never be free and their lives were filled with deep suffering. And so uh, you could envision a reader in Paul's day reading Paul's letter and reading about Jesus being raised from the dead and reading about our being united with Christ in his resurrection and saying, all right, Paul, what do you, what do you mean we're going to live forever? Because my life's not all that great right now. And so I'd like for you to maybe specify what exactly you mean by I'm going to live forever. Right? Um, you know, imagine imagine going into a, a Nazi concentration camp in, in Nazi Germany and sitting down with a prisoner there, uh, a Jewish person or a, a disabled person, and their life is just horrible, right? Uh, worked to death all day, every day, and you can never stop working because as soon as you do, you'll be declared unfit for labor and unceremoniously executed on the spot and thrown into a mass grave and you're, um, you know, you're not given enough food to eat and you, you don't have adequate clothing and you're being tortured and experimented on. Imagine going to that person in that concentration camp and saying, hey, I've got great news for you. You're never going to die. You're going to live on forever and ever and ever. And you can, you can thank me later for this good news. They'd probably say, I, I think that's good news because I don't like death and I don't like dying. But, and I don't want to be ungrateful, but my life is really hard. I'm suffering tremendously right now. And so I don't know if I want to live this life for, forever. I don't know that 
the idea of living trillions and trillions of years in this exact life, in these exact circumstances, as I'm living right now, is all that appealing. Frankly, death sounds preferable to that. Death sounds like relief. It sounds like like mercy, right? Living a life like this one for all of eternity sounds awful. There's... There's actually entire world religions based on that very principle, right? Based on the idea that death is better than living on uh, forever. Hinduism and Buddhism are built on this idea that we live in this infinite loop of death and rebirth and life and death and rebirth and life and death and rebirth. Millions and millions of times we've lived this, in fact, effectively an infinite number of times we've lived this cycle of life, death, and rebirth. So much so that uh, Hinduism and Buddhism teach that you have lived so many lives that anything you can conceive of, you have you have lived a life as as that, right? You've you've been rich, you've been poor, you've been the the president of the United States, you've been the king of a huge empire, you've been a slave, you've been a child who died in infancy, and and not even just humans, right? You've been a dog, you've been a giraffe, you've been a salamander, you've been a a blade of grass, you've been a sandwich, you've been a, a book, right? Anything you can conceive of, at some point, you have come back as that, you have lived a life as that thing, and you'll never, ever stop living an infinite number of lives. Uh, it just goes on over and over and over. And that's that's the rest of your eternity, is just living an endless cycle of monotony and boredom and just life, death, rebirth, over and over. The The best you can hope for in these religions is to build up good karma. To be a good person, to to not buck the system. If you're if you're a, a member of the peasant class, don't try to rise up and become a member of the the you know higher classes. Stay where you are. Be a good peasant. Don't cause an uprising, and maybe you'll get enough good karma that next time you'll come back in a higher class, and maybe eventually you'll get so much good karma that you will uh, break the cycle. You'll you'll actually break out of the cycle uh, and not have to go on living anymore. In Hinduism, it's called moksha, and in Buddhism, it's called nirvana. But the principle is the same. It's that eventually, uh, the, the best thing that can happen for you is to simply stop living. Life is this infinite, you know, boring, monotonous, it's a burden. Life is a burden, and it goes on forever, and the best thing you can do is rid yourself of the burden that is life. So there's entire world religions that that don't want to go on living forever. That they're based around breaking out of the cycle of living forever. And and certainly some in Paul's day might have had this question that Paul, if I'm going to live forever, can you give me some more specificity as to what that eternal life is going to look like so that I can know whether it's a a blessing or a curse? Frankly, and that's what First Corinthians 15. 35 to 49 is about. It's kind of looking at and describing it and thinking about eternal life. 1 through 11, Jesus has been raised from the dead. 12 through 34, you will be raised with him and have eternal life with him. 35 to 49, given that we are going to be raised with Christ and live eternal life with him, what's that going to look like? You know, forever is a long time. So I'd like to know what exactly I'm getting myself into. So let's read through 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 49, and consider what Paul has to say to answer this exact question. 
It reads, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps a kernel of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, there's another glory of the moon, there's another glory of the stars, for stars themselves differ in their uh, glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, and what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body, and it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, this first man, Adam, became a living being. But the last man, but the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is the first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, and the second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust... We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that Jesus is not dead. We thank you that Jesus is not buried in a tomb in the Middle East. We thank you that Jesus is alive. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you, since you're alive, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. We pray that you would meet us here as we read your word and listen to your word and, and come under the authority of your word. We pray that you would speak to us and change us and soften our hearts and make us more like you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, let's begin in chapter 15, verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Right, Paul, what, what does this resurrection that you speak of look like exactly? Am, am I going to have the same body that I have now? Am I going to look the same, the same physical limitations? Right, am I going to be able to dunk a basketball uh, with this resurrection body since I cannot now? What's it going to be like? And here's Paul's response. You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. In other words, the life that you uh, will be living for all of eternity is not like the life that you are living right now. The, the body that you will inhabit for all of eternity is not like the body that you are inhabiting now. They are categorically different from one another, right? analogy of of farming and of agriculture a farmer uh spends all of the of the sowing season uh sowing seeds right so that so that months later during the harvest season he can harvest 
the crops. A, a, a farmer doesn't sow seeds into the field so that during harvest season he can go out and dig up all of the same exact seeds and bring them back into the storehouse. He sows seeds in anticipation of harvesting crops, plants, vegetables, right? Um, and so the, the, the seeds that the farmer plants are planted in hopes of something better, something different growing out of them. Seeds in and of themselves aren't good for anything. Uh, they're only good for something if plants grow out of them so that you can have vegetables to, to eat and, and sell, right? And so Paul says, uh, that's what the transition will be like from this life and this body to the next life and the next body. It will be like a seed growing into something different and better, a plant, a, a crop. So our bodies, when we transition into uh, the eternal state after the resurrection, there will be something different, something better. There will be a contrast between our current bodies and the bodies that we will have in the resurrection. There's a contrast between the life that we're experiencing now full of pain and, and suffering, the world that we are inhabiting now that's fallen and broken, there's a contrast between that and the life we'll be living free from pain and free from suffering in a world that is restored and renewed after the resurrection. Eternal life with God, in the presence of God, under the rule of God, will be vastly different than the life that we're living right now. This life where where Satan has, you know, a, a limited modicum of authority to do his will and where sin still has power over us. Paul says this life is a seed and eternal life is the plant that grows out of it. It's way better. It's way different. And he says, this is nothing new, right? This idea that our uh, resurrection bodies and the life that we will live for all of eternity is different than our current life. It's not, it's not new. You see it all over nature. Everything all over nature has different bodies. Everything is different, right? Verse 39, not all flesh is the same, right? Uh, there's one kind of flesh for humans, another kind for animals, different for birds, different for fish. All different kinds of animals have different kinds of bodies. It's built into nature. And this is an analogy for how we are to compare our present body with the resurrected body that we will inhabit uh, after we die and are raised to be with Jesus. Verse 40, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly one is of one kind. The glory of the earthly one is of another. There's one glory of the sun and the moon and the stars. Stars themselves differ from one another. So it's not just animals and plants and fish. It's also astronomy, right? The sun is different from the moon. The moon is different from the stars. And so we have this precedence in, in nature of things being different from one another, right? And as we'll see in the next verse, uh, that is an analogy for our bodies and our lives so is it verse 42 so is it with the resurrection of the dead and then paul walks through four ways in which our eternal body and life will be contrasted with our present body and life one is one is perishable the other is imperishable one is dishonorable by virtue of sin and the fall and the other is glorious one one is weak the other is powerful one is natural the other is spiritual right and the the main point that Paul's making is painfully clear. Our eternal life in a renewed, recreated body will be vastly different than the life that we are living here. And it will be vastly better and superior to the life that we are living here. Currently, right in verse 45, currently we're patterned after Adam. The first person God created. But in heaven we will be patterned after Jesus himself. 
Verse 25 says, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. And the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So according to Genesis 2, God literally fashioned Adam out of the dust of the ground. He shaped him into a human being. He breathed his life into Adam. He animated Adam. And, and then he gave Adam dominion over uh, the garden to rule in his stead. That's Adam's story. Creation ex nihilo. He was nothing. He was fashioned from the dirt, from the dust, and then he was life was breathed into him. It's not Jesus' story. Jesus' story is altogether different. Jesus wasn't created out of the dust in the ground. Jesus uh, has always existed as the second member of the Trinity. No one created Jesus. Jesus is the creator. He voluntarily, as the creator, entered into his creation. And when he did, he secured access for all of his people to enjoy new life through him, right? Adam is not alive and needs God to breathe life into him. Jesus is alive and Jesus gives life to those people who trust in him and who are united to him. And so Paul's setting up this contrast, right? The first, verse 47, the first man was from earth, the man of dust. The second man is from heaven. On the one hand, you've got Adam who represents the world and earth and he's temporary. On the other hand, you've got Jesus and he is the second Adam. He's the last Adam. He represents heaven and spirit and eternity. But the contrast is not just between Adam and, and Jesus, right? The, the contrast is also between uh, the people that they represent. Adam is representative of the people that are united to him. Jesus is representative of the people that are united to him. Verse 48, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. So Paul is saying, if you're a physical descendant of Adam, if you, then, then you are like Adam. You bear his image. You're like him in a very real way. Adam was formed from the dust. And by virtue of being united with him and being represented by him, uh, we, his physical descendants, share those qualities, right? We uh, have physically descended from Adam, and so he represents us, and we are like him. But... The same is true of Jesus and his spiritual descendants. Just as Adam represents his physical descendants and they bear his image and they're like him, so too Jesus represents his spiritual descendants and they bear his image and they are like him. So that means that, that all of us, all of us by virtue of being a human, when we are born... We're represented by Adam and we bear Adam's image. Adam sinned in the garden and his sin was reckoned. It was charged to our account. We, by virtue of being uh, a descendant of Adam, were born into sin. We inherit a sinful nature from Adam. From birth, we are deserving of the wrath of God because the sin nature that we inherit from Adam, right? Because of the sin that we participate in with Adam. And yet, Jesus' ministry has the exact opposite effect, right? Adam was from earth, but Jesus was from heaven. Adam sinned, and his sin was charged to our account. Jesus was perfect, and his righteousness was credited to our account. Even though we were born in the likeness of Adam with a sinful nature, when we come to faith in Christ and he sanctifies us, over time, we take on the nature of Christ, a new nature, a sanctified, Holy Spirit-empowered nature. 
That's what Paul says in verse 49. Just as we have at one point borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's Jesus. Our, our, our default behavior is to bear the image of Adam. It's to look like Adam. It's to behave like Adam. It's to, it's to sin against God like Adam sinned against God. But in Christ, that, that default behavior has been upended. It's been discarded. Now we have a new nature with new desires. We start to look like Jesus. We start to behave like Jesus. We start to glorify God with our lives like Jesus did. And that, that new nature that wants to glorify God rather than sin against him, that is what will carry on into eternal life. For those of us who trust in Christ, when we die, then, then like Jesus will be resurrected. And when we're resurrected to eternal life, that life won't look like this life does now. It'll be different. It will be better. Our eternal life in our resurrected bodies will look like Jesus' life in Jesus' body and not like Adam's life in Adam's body. And that's the, that's the whole question that Paul is addressing in this, in this entire passage, right? That, that if, if it's true that Jesus was raised from the dead, and if it's true that we will be raised from the dead with Jesus for all of eternity, what's that going to look like? What's that going to be like? Are we, are we to assume that eternity is just like a long version of this life? Where, where, where everything is the same. It, like, does, does eternal, uh, in the, in the phrase eternal life, does eternal, uh, simply refer to quantity, right? Is, is the, is it everlasting? Like just duration, how long it is. It's this life times infinity on out into the future. Or does eternal refer to, to quality? Right? Is, is there something different? Is there something qualitatively different about eternal life in a resurrected body than there is about this life in this body? And Paul's answer is that when we're raised from the dead with Jesus to eternal life to be with him forever, it will be different. It will be qualitatively different. Just like, just like, uh, plants are different from seeds, just like, Birds are different from fish, just like the sun is different from the moon, just like Jesus is different from Adam. Our eternal life in heaven with God will be radically different than this life. And it will be better. It will be perfect. And so now because of that reality, we can live this life in view of our eternal life that is to come. We can live this life in anticipation of the eternal life that is to come, right? And that, that's, that's actually the, that's the main application of this text, right? There's doctrine, there's application. The doctrine is very clear. Resurrection is real. Eternal life is real. You will live forever, either in heaven with God or in hell separated from God, right? The, the nature of eternal life is different than the nature of this life. That's the doctrine of this text here in 1 Corinthians 15. But the application of this text is this. It's, it's now that you know that doctrine, that the resurrection is real, eternal life is real. Now that you know it, live your life in view of it. Live life in view of eternity. Given all that you know about the doctrine we've just established, live life, prepare for eternity, invest in eternity, be ready for eternity. Right? Live in view of the eternity that is awaiting you. Because if you, if you believe in the resurrection and you believe that you really are going to be raised again to eternal life, that will 
invariably, inevitably, that will change how you live here in this life. It's going to give your life meaning. It's going to give your life value. It's going to give your life purpose. Think about it. Right? If, if this life is all there is, if this 80 years that you're living right now is all there is and not one day more, and after you die, after this life is over, you just revert back to a state of non-existence like before you were born, then what meaning does your life have? What's... What's the purpose of your life? What's the, what's the point of your life? What could you possibly do with your life that has any sort of real significance at, at all? Oh, well, I'm going to just uh, make a bunch of money and build a great life for myself. Okay, fine. Go ahead. But you realize 100 years from now, you'll be dead and you won't exist anymore. And it won't matter at all. You won't, a hundred years from now, you won't exist and you won't care whether or not you had a bunch of money or no money, whether or not you were a billionaire or you died and you won't care. And for the rest of eternity, for, for all of the rest of time, you'll be living in a state of non-existence and it won't matter whether you made money or, or not. You say, all right, well, then I'll, I, I won't live for money. I'll, I'll find a way to uh, invest in things that will outlast me, right? I'll, I'll make the world a better place. I'll, I'll, uh, you know, raise a family and teach them lessons that matter. Or, or I'll, I'll be like Steve Jobs and I'll invent something that will change the world and, and kind of alter it remarkably for, for the better. Okay, great. So maybe your legacy will last a little bit longer than it would be if it was just money. Right? Maybe, maybe it lasts into the next generation or the one after that. Maybe the world has changed for the better for a little while after you die. But what happens eventually? I mean, eventually, 10 billion years from now, the earth is swallowed up by the sun. And then for all of the rest of time after that, it, it, what, what does it matter? No one, a billion years from now, 10 billion years from now, it's not going to matter whether the iPhone was invented or not. It's not going to matter whether or not you made some influence that lasted for a few generations or not, because there aren't going to be any more generations. If, if the resurrection is not real, then nothing you do matters at all, bar none. There's nothing you can do that has any sort of real, lasting, permanent, ultimate significance. There's no meaning at all. And so the resurrection gives this life meaning. All of a sudden, if Jesus is raised from the dead, if I will be raised from the dead with him, if I will live life for all of eternity with Jesus, all of a sudden there's real and permanent and ultimate meaning for things. Investing in relationships does matter now. It takes on new meaning because those people are created in the image of God and they will live forever. When we invest in relationships, we're investing in something that will last forever. When when we share the gospel with someone, we're doing something that has eternal implications. People will literally be saved from eternity in hell and they'll be reconciled to God to live with him forever and ever based on some random conversation that they had with someone when they heard the gospel because the resurrection is real what you do now matters it has significance when you love your neighbor instead of being selfish that matters and has eternal implications when when you 
When you support a missionary on the field instead of buying a boat, that matters and has eternal ramifications. When you die to yourself and mortify sin in your life and seek to glorify God, that matters. And it will echo on into eternity. The resurrection of Jesus, and by extension, our resurrection in Jesus that we will experience with him, gives our life meaning and significance and and value. But it's not just that the resurrection gives our life meaning and significance, although it does. The resurrection of Jesus also gives, it puts our life here in this world into perspective. Right? So, so on the one hand, it gives our life meaning. It, it, it raises, it raises the profile of this life. Before my life, di- if, if the resurrection is not real, my life doesn't matter. Since it is, my life does matter. It elevates the importance and the meaning of this life. But what, what the resurrection also does is it kind of brings it back down to earth. It brings it back down to something that is manageable. Uh, if, if this life is all there is, if there's no such thing as a resurrection, there's no such thing as eternal life, you've got this life, 80 years, that's it, not a day more, then you had dang better make this life count. Right? You, you had better, I mean, you've got 80 years and no, after 80 years, uh, you just kind of vanish into a state of nothingness and non-existence. So while you're here during these 80 years, you better squeeze every possible drop of pleasure and joy that you can out of life because it's all that there is. You, you had better not leave one item, uh, on your bucket list that you didn't get to. You better, you better visit every country that you want to see. You better spend every last dime that you have. And then some. You better get the absolute most out of this life because it is your only chance. There can't, there can't possibly be a greater uh, purpose or a redemptive hope for suffering. Every moment that you spend suffering in this life is a moment that you could have been spending experiencing joy and pleasure. So suffering, if there's no resurrection, all of a sudden suffering becomes this crippling, just devastating proposition. There's no purpose to it. All it is is robbing us of pleasure that we would otherwise be experiencing. So, so get, so, so, you know, you've got to get what you want out of this life now because it's all that you have and you'll never get another chance. That's what, that's the, that's the, the, that's life. If there is no such thing as the resurrection, it's, it's fraught with pressure and, and weight. Um, I don't know if you've been to a Brazilian steakhouse. It's one of my favorite restaurants to go to. I've only been once or twice, but it's the it's an all you can eat steakhouse, and uh, they literally have seventeen different kinds of meat. And guys walk around on these big, huge swords with like big hunks of meat, and, and you know they kind of. And when you walk in, they give you a coaster. They give you a coaster that's green on one side and red on the other side. And so when you want more food, you put your coaster to green and they will come by and they will bring one of these 17 different kinds of meat to your table and plunk it down and cut huge slabs of, you know, beef and chicken and pork and all kinds of things for you to, to eat. It's, it's an incredible uh, experience. It's kind of a, you know, you know, one flat fee to get all of the, you know, really good beef, steak, everything else that you could possibly, that you could possibly eat. But there's a problem. There's a problem with the Brazil, at least for people like me, right, who uh, have 
this have a, a obsessive desire to just get the most bang for your buck, right? And, and who don't want to be a sucker uh, under any circumstances. The problem when someone like me, when I go to a Brazilian steakhouse is that there's a, now there's a lot of pressure on me, right? Like I can't just go and sit down and enjoy a meal like I would any other meal. This is a special once-in-a-lifetime meal that costs more than any other meal that I've ever uh, eaten. And so I have to make absolutely sure that I get the most... I have to try every single kind of meat. I have to try all 17 different cuts of meat during this one hour that I'm going to be in this Brazilian steakhouse. So it's a lot of pressure. Right now I have to... I have to train for weeks leading up to it to make sure that I can eat enough. I have to, you know, fast for days leading up to it to make sure that I'm hungry enough to eat all of this food because I've got this one narrow window in this dining room and that's my only chance to eat that food. No second chances. Eat what you can while you're there and once you leave, it's over. So make the most of it while you can. It's a lot, it's a lot of pressure. And that that is the kind of pressure that we experience in this life if there's no such thing as the resurrection. If you've got 80 years to experience everything that you ever want to experience in this life, and then once you die, it's over, there's no second chances, there's no mulligans, there's no, there's no do-overs, then, then you know, if you didn't squeeze it in in these 80 years, you never will. That's a lot of pressure. There's a big world out there and there are countless experiences to be had and we have 80 years in which to have them. So if the resurrection is not real, there's this infinite amount of pressure on us on any given moment to make sure that I am in fact enjoying it to the fullest. And if I'm not, then I'm wasting my life. It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of weight on my shoulders. And frankly, if I screw it up, it's a lot of guilt on my shoulders. And the resurrection... The, the prospect of eternal life out in front of us absolves us of that guilt and of that, that pressure. All of a sudden, if the resurrection is real, I don't just have 80 years that I need to squeeze in every ounce of pleasure and joy that I can because I have all of eternity to experience all of the pleasure and all of the joy that God has for me. The pressure is off. If the resurrection is real, then all of a sudden, suffering in my life can have a greater purpose. It can be, it can be redemptive. It's quite possible that God might be allowing me to experience suffering in this life in order to achieve an eternal glory that far outweighs it. So I don't need to fear suffering. I don't need to hate suffering. I don't need to resent suffering. I don't need to avoid it at all costs. I can, I can suffer well and trust God in the midst of it, believing that it has a greater redemptive purpose in my life that I will see in eternity. The resurrection does that for us. It achieves that for us, right? It gives our life meaning and value and purpose because it's linked. It's, it's attached. It's, it's adjacent to an eternal life that goes on forever. And it puts this life into perspective, right? And, and it, it absolves us from feeling guilty or pressure, right? It, it elevates life, but it also brings life back down to earth. And so, 
So if God is not real, if the resurrection is not real, then life has no meaning, life has no purpose, nothing that you do matters, and at the very same time, if God is not real, and if the resurrection is not real, then you are being crushed under the the weight of just an infinite amount of pressure to make the most out of this life while you can, because it's all that you've got. And yet, if God is real, and if the resurrection is real, then A, this life has meaning, it has purpose, and it matters, but B, this life, the, the pressure is off, right? It's, it's, this life is not all that you've got. It's, it, this life is the front end, the very front end of an eternal timeline that stretches on out for trillions and trillions of years. And that is what we remember together on Easter Sunday. We remember that, that Jesus is risen. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. And because Jesus is risen, we will be raised from the dead. We will experience eternal life with Jesus, right? What we do matters in this life because of the resurrection of Jesus. And the pressure is off here in this life because of the resurrection of Jesus. And now, in view of all that, we have some very simple, very clear directives from our king. From Jesus, our risen king, our living king, who's alive right now. He's given us some very simple, very clear marching orders for how to take advantage of this life and leverage it for the sake of eternity. And that is to turn from our sin and to believe the gospel. Right? To, to turn from our sin, meaning to, to look inward to our souls at, at who we are and to, to recognize the ways in which we are sinning against God, the ways in which we have sinned against God, the ways in which we have fallen short of God's perfect standard, the ways in which we have rebelled against God and, and, and declared war against God. Right, To look at our lives and then to turn from sin, to fight against it, to, to make war on it, to kill it, to mortify it, to turn from our sin and to trust in the gospel. To trust in the sufficiency of the person and work of Jesus. To trust that Jesus came here among us, that he lived a perfect life, that the life that God called Adam to live and that he failed to live, the life that God called us to live and that we fail to live. Jesus lived that life for us. And then Jesus died as a perfect, sinless substitute. He died a sinner's death. His, his body was broken. His blood was poured out. The, the wrath of God fell in full force on Jesus and crushed him. And he died and he was buried in a tomb. And then... Jesus was raised in victory over Satan and sin and death. He got up out of the grave. He was raised up and he was ascended to the right hand of our Father in heaven. And he's interceding for us even to this day. He is he's actively defending us against Satan's accusations, right? Jesus is speaking on our behalf. And if we trust him, Jesus has promised. He's promised that he will bring us home to be with him forever and ever, right? Jesus has risen. Jesus has given us very clear marching orders here on this side of eternity. Turn from your sin. Trust in the person and work of Christ in the gospel. And then walk in obedience and in relationship with him during the course of this life. The resurrection is real. 
and uh, eternal life with God is real. And what we do in this life echoes into eternity. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are, we're so grateful for the resurrection. We're so grateful that you're not dead, but that you're alive. We're grateful that you hear our prayers. We're grateful that you are interceding for us. We're grateful that you will not lose us ever because you're alive and you're actively holding on to us. Jesus, we thank you for the truth of the gospel and we look to you and we trust in you and we hold fast to you knowing that you are our only hope. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.